This is the Voice Podcast Network. Imagine a little place out in Queens In a frame of tall evergreens Where a couple dwelled mid this happiest of scenes He called her Ruthie, she called him Al She was something more than a pal She was a lazy little, lethal kind of gal Hey guys, welcome to Horror Saxa, a true crime podcast focusing on cases in Georgetown and the DMV area. I'm your co-host, Brett Rouch. And I'm Amelia Shotwell. Thanks for tuning in. As a warning, today's episode contains sexual content and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. In our episode today, we will cover the highly publicized trial of Ruth Snyder, a woman who, trapped in a loveless marriage, staged a burglary, and successfully murdered her husband. Both Ruth and Judd Gray, her lover and accomplice, paid dearly for their crimes. Before we get into the actual events of the murder, let's dive into Ruth's background. After eighth grade, Ruth Brown, later to be named Ruth Snyder, dropped out of school and started working as a phone operator. Roughly five years later, when Ruth was 19, she placed a call for a man named Albert Schneider. This call was in fact not from Mr. Schneider after all, who responded in rage, yelling furiously at Ruth. This temper was a common theme throughout Albert Schneider's life. Schneider quickly called Ruth back and asked to meet in person to properly apologize. Surprisingly, Ruth agreed, and Schneider visited her at work and offered her a job working as a reader and copyist for the magazine he worked at. On paper, Schneider was an impressive individual, a sophisticated older man, an art director at Motorboating Magazine, a series about competitive boating, and he had a degree in art and graphic design. Ruth was equally attractive to Schneider. She was young, attractive, and receptive to Schneider's advances. Ruth and Albert's work relationship soon grew flirtatious. This was despite Albert's continued remembrance of his previous fiancée, Jessie Gishard, who had died 10 years earlier to pneumonia. Albert kept scrapbooks with her pictures and had a pin with her initials, J.G. Ruth and Albert's dates included going to fancy restaurants and shows. In December of 1914, Snyder proposed and Ruth rejected him, but they still continued to date. On Ruth's following birthday, Snyder proposed again with a diamond ring hidden in a box of chocolates. This time, Ruth accepted and they married on the condition that Albert changes his name to Snyder to sound more American. Thus, the couple Ruth and Albert Snyder were wed. Marriage life was much worse than Ruth had expected. Albert no longer wanted to go on fancy dates, preferring to stay at home gardening or working on home improvement projects. Even worse to Ruth, Albert seemed to favor his fiancée Jessie over Ruth, and would actually compare the two to make Ruth feel bad. Additionally, Albert's boat was named Jessie G until Ruth asked him to name it after her. And there was a constant cycle of Albert putting up pictures of Jessie just for Ruth to take them down, and then Albert would put them back up again, and so on. Ruth also wanted lots of pets in the house, but Albert wouldn't even let her keep the one dog she had bought. But the worst part of the marriage to Ruth was that Albert didn't want kids. Ruth had wanted kids all her life, but between Albert's veto and Ruth's own fertility issues, it all seemed impossible. But determined to become a mother, Ruth sought medical help without Albert knowing. And when Albert found out she was pregnant, he was irate. 
Ruth got him to accept the responsibility of fatherhood, but he still wanted the child to be a boy. She gave birth to a girl and named her Lorraine. This would continue to be a point of argument between the couple. Albert absolutely refused to take care of his child, and he believed pregnancy had ruined Ruth's figure. They eventually moved to Queens Village, a suburban area outside New York City. Ruth's mother moved in with them to help take care of Lorraine. Despite the new house, their relationship remained unchanged. Albert was a glum homebody, while Ruth was adventurous, outgoing, perfectly in spirit with the 20s. Ruth frequently went to parties to drink, smoke, and dance. Perhaps she went out so often to avoid being at home, where Albert was aggressive and sometimes even violent. One time, a young boy hit a baseball through the Snyder's window. Albert responded to this by chasing him down and beating the boy in the boy's own living room. Albert and Ruth also argued about Ruth's extravagant and costly lifestyle, and disagreed about sending Lorraine to a boarding school, which Ruth wanted to do but Albert refused to allow. Needless to say, Ruth was miserable with her marriage, but divorce didn't seem like an option to her. She wanted both alimony and custody of Lorraine, which would require proof of cruelty or adultery. Albert's behavior did not meet the legal standards for cruelty at the time. It was at this depressing point in Ruth's life that she met a man named Judd Gray while having lunch with some friends. Judd was a traveling corset salesman. Like Ruth, he was also sociable and married with a kid. And like Ruth, Judd didn't get along with his wife because she was a homegirl, as Judd described her, or a homebody. Shortly after this meeting, Ruth, Albert, and Lorraine went on a family vacation, which ended early because Albert got into a fight with a friend. This was the final catalyst to begin Ruth's affair with Judd Gray. Whenever Judd was in the city for business, the two would meet privately in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel or sneak past Ruth's mother in her own home. The pair would have sex and go to the theater and rooftop garden parties. They even had nicknames for each other. Judd became Loverboy and Ruth became Momsy. When separated, they sent frequent letters to each other. Ruth was honest about the affair with the mailman so that they would deliver Judd's letters straight to her and not Albert. Ruth also introduced Judd to her friends, her mother, and even Lorraine. Ruth finally had the fulfilling relationship she had always wanted, and more than ever, she wished to escape her marriage with Albert. And if she couldn't divorce Albert as she believed, Ruth saw only one other way to get out. And then the one day Ruth said, Judd, it's the truth, I love you and I always shall. But I'm bored, aren't you? What'll we do? I know. Let's kill Al. Ruth tricked Albert into buying $90,000 of life insurance. This is worth $1.3 million today, but Albert believed he was buying much less than that. Ruth even paid the insurance off every month in secret, although she was using Albert's money. The first attempt to kill Albert was in July of 1926. Albert was alone in the house when, suddenly, fumes caused him to pass out. Apparently, Ruth had accidentally knocked the gas tube open. Another time, while Albert was underneath his car working on it, Ruth accidentally knocked over the stand holding the car. She also tried to poison Albert through his medicine and liquor. After yet another attempt to use toxic gas to kill him, Albert even made a joke about how close Ruth had come to being a widow. He was completely unaware that widowhood was exactly what Ruth was looking for. But after all these failed murders, Ruth feared that Albert would eventually find out about the insurance policy. Her time was running out. So who else would she turn to but her lover, Judd Gray? And so, Ruth Snyder repeatedly attempted to convince Judd Gray to murder her husband. However, Gray, 
meek in disposition, did not believe Ruth's claims that her husband was abusive and thus refused to go through with the crime. In fact, Judd was so terrified at the prospect of murder, he took to heavy drinking of prohibition alcohol. Ruth's incessant nagging eventually got to Judd, and he gave in on March 19, 1927. Judd was on a business trip in Syracuse at the time, supposedly providing the perfect alibi as the couple hatched their plan. The day of the 19th, Judd spent drinking copious amounts of prohibition liquor. That night, he took a train to New York and then a bus to Queens. The Snyder family was out of the house attending a bridge party at their neighbors. As planned, Judd entered through the back door of the Snyder home and hid in a spare room. Here, Ruth had already hidden a window sash weight, gloves, and chloroform, weapons that would later become quintessential to their murder. Judd waited in the spare room until the early hours of March 20th, 1927. The family returned from the party around two in the morning. Albert, who had been drinking profusely, got ready for bed immediately. Ruth, on the other hand, put young Lorraine to bed and then visited Gray. She whispered to him in the dark, checking to see if he had gotten cold feet and ditched their plan. He had not. Next, Ruth returned to the master bedroom and rested by Albert's side until she was positive he was asleep. Returning yet again to the spare bedroom, this time in a slip, Ruth and Judd had sex, Ruth's husband sleeping just down the hall. After an hour or so, around three in the morning, the couple grabbed the window weight and headed to the master bedroom to kill Albert. After an hour or so, around three in the morning, the couple grabbed the window weight and headed to the master bedroom to kill Albert. Once they entered the room, Gray positioned himself by Albert's side of the bed. Mustering courage, Gray weakly hit him over the head with the window sash. However, this blow did not kill Albert. Instead, the measly attack nearly woke the man up, causing him to exclaim in anger. In surprise, Albert leapt out of bed and began throttling Judd, who consequently dropped the window weight. Supposedly, Judd cried to Ruth for help, and the murderous woman, unfazed, picked up the sash weight and beat her husband repeatedly with it until he let go of Judd and slumped to the floor unconscious. Judd and Ruth then stuffed Albert's nose full of chloroform-soaked rags, ready to leave the man for dead. This is a story of the murder widely agreed upon by the jury, detectives, and public. However, to her dying day, Ruth upheld a different version of the murder. According to Ruth, right before they were poised to attack, she got cold feet, resulting in an intense argument with Judd. The couple fought over whether they should kill Albert, Ruth claiming she was against the idea. Mid-argument, however, Ruth insists she went to the bathroom, at which time Judd bludgeoned Albert to death with the window sash. When Ruth returned to the room, she swore that her husband was already dead. Either way, Judd and Ruth sat on the stairs together after the murder, believably shaken by the gruesome events. Judd drank whiskey with shaky hands and Ruth stared into space. The pair apparently stayed in this exact place until the milkman stopped by at 4.30 in the morning. At some point, the couple began to stir and decided they'd better stage a cover-up. And so they got to work, staging a burglary gone wrong. First, they burned Ruth's blood-soaked nightdress and Judd's splattered shirt. Ironically, Ruth gave Judd one of her deceased husband's shirts to wear as a replacement. Then, the couple ransacked the house. 
They overturned furniture, broke shelves, threw cushions around, and dumped out silverware drawers. Ruth even hid some of her jewelry, pretending it had gone missing and been stolen by the robbers. They hid the murder weapons, including the infamous window sash weight, in the family's basement. According to some reports, they dropped Albert's former lover's J.G. pin near his body to provide potential leads on the names of the killers. If this is true, the couple failed to remember that the letters J.G. were in fact Judd Gray's initials. Other reports claim Ruth placed Albert's gun at the crime scene to make it look like he had tried to defend himself against the fictitious burglars. At any rate, Judd and Ruth certainly tied Albert's limbs with towels and strangled him with picture wire to make certain the man was dead. Once all this had been taken care of, Judd lightly tied Ruth's ankles together with clothesline and left her on the stair landing. Ruth repeatedly asked Judd to hit her over the head so her story about the attackers would seem more realistic. Judd refused. When the house seemed perfectly destroyed, Judd left and headed quickly back to Syracuse, taking a train from Union Station. When Judd eventually arrived in Syracuse, he met with his friend, Haddon Gray. Judd told Haddon that he was visiting Ruth in her home when two robbers entered and attacked. Judd claimed he hid during the onslaught and fled the house immediately after, fearing he would be accused of the crime. Haddon apparently believed Judd, promising to keep his story secret and inviting him to dinner. Judd spent the rest of the night drinking with Haddon and playing marbles with his children. As he left, Judd promised to visit the family the very next day, a promise he would never fulfill. Meanwhile, Ruth lay on the ground waiting to be found the next morning. Supposedly growing tired of this, Ruth called out to her young daughter, who woke up and called the neighbors. When the neighbors arrived on the scene, they found Ruth with her ankles tied and stranded on the landing, just as Judd had left her. Ruth shared her made-up story, claiming she heard a noise from the families downstairs and went to investigate. Heading down the stairs, Ruth insisted she encountered a dark man with a mustache who hit her over the head, rendering her unconscious for five hours. Ruth later proclaimed the man was an Italian immigrant offering scraps of an Italian-language newspaper found at the scene as evidence. Ruth presumably did this to draw on the intense xenophobic sentiment of the time and gain sympathy from the detectives and the public. After hearing the story, one neighbor quickly found Albert's body and called the police to investigate. Around 8 in the morning, detectives and a doctor arrived at the Snyder household. Retelling her story to the police, Ruth swiftly fell under intense suspicion. The first sign something was off was Ruth herself. Despite her claims she had suffered a blow to the head, the doctor could not find any sign of injury or damage to her body. Detectives also thought the scene looked incredibly staged, wondering why a skilled robber would sort through silverware drawers and other things of little value. Additionally, police found canceled checks to an insurance company and Judd Gray, even discovering Ruth's jewelry hidden under the mattress. Detectives even interrogated Ruth's daughter and neighbors, learning that Ruth often went out late at night and that she argued with Albert. Garnering enough suspicion, the police brought Ruth into custody at the Jamaica police station. Ruth stuck to her robbery story despite these allegations. At one point, Ruth attested that she spent her nights out with her cousin Ethel. Detectives, investigating this lead, reached out to Ethel's husband, who is also a member of the police. 
It was through Ethel's husband that they learned about Ruth's affair with Judd Gray. Newly equipped with this information, the police asked Ruth if Judd was the man who killed her husband. Immediately turning on her lover, Ruth said, quote, he did it, and told officials where to find him. Judd, on the other hand, was just heading to bed when police arrived to question him. Judd was taken to the Syracuse police station, maintaining he had not left Syracuse the entire night. Meanwhile, a maid cleaning his hotel room found the torn ticket stub from Judd's train ride that morning in his garbage, completely dismantling his alibi. The maid instantly turned the contents of the wastebasket over to the police. Detectives, however, did not immediately tell Judd of the evidence against him. And so, when he left on the train for Queens, he was in a fairly good mood, telling stories to the detectives in blissful ignorance. At some point on this journey, the lieutenant traveling with Judd told him of the ticket stub discovery. Gray, caught in his own lies, fessed up to the crime. When he arrived in New York, he put his statement in writing and was placed under arrest. That day, Ruth and Judd were taken to the Jamaica Town Hall for preliminary arraignment. Both Ruth and Judd pled not guilty, pinning the crime on the other. Their lawyers would later claim any confessions were made under duress. The couple was moved to a local prison where they slept in cells on opposite sides of the building. The murder quickly gained public attention as journalists latched onto flashy details and sensationalized the stories. Reporters hounded Judd's wife and Ruth's mother, requesting constant interviews. Ruth, excited by such attention, happily participated in said interviews and posed for photo ops. While her lawyers advised her to act the part of the grieving widow, Ruth could not shy away from her loud, flashy flapper attitude. She hoped to win favor from the public with such exposure. However, the media coverage was far from sympathetic. Instead, the news portrayed her as a cruel, wicked, deceitful woman who had seduced and manipulated the frail Judd Gray into a delicious murder scandal. Her public image was decidedly negative, earning her the nickname Ruthless Ruth. Judd pursued a different route, becoming devoutly religious. In his free time, he read the Bible and attended services in prison. He played up the role of a pious man, begging forgiveness for his sins. Because of the massive press coverage, the trial was attended by thousands of people. Around 1,500 people packed the courtroom with nearly 2,000 flooding into the streets. The trial was such a spectacle that opportunists sold fake tickets and pins of the Sashweight murder weapon for 10 cents outside. Celebrities were given their own viewing section, and every major newspaper had representatives reporting. Because so many people already knew about Judd and Ruth, Ruth's attorneys had difficulty finding jurors that weren't already biased against her. Ruth complained about being bored during the multiple days of jury selection. The press blamed these delays on Ruth herself, claiming that she and her lawyers were looking for naive men that would be easy for Ruth to manipulate. Ruth responded to these accusations with frustration that the jury was made up of only men, as no women could legally serve, which only furthers the influence of sexism on the trial results. As expected, Ruth and Judd blamed each other and both tried to play the role of the reluctant participant to the other's commands. The goal of this was to avoid the death penalty by seeking a guilty verdict with a lesser punishment. Ruth actually wanted to talk about the abusive issues she had faced during marriage, hoping she could gather sympathy from the jury but her lawyers didn't think it was a good look for women to talk about things like that. 
The trial concluded Monday, May 9th, after 11 days. After only an hour and 40 minutes of deliberation, the jury stated their belief in Judd over Ruth, but still found both guilty in first-degree murder, resulting in a legally required death penalty sentence. When the verdict was declared, Ruth collapsed in tears before quickly recovering and composing herself. Judd, on the other hand, remained stoic throughout. Ruth and Judd were later transported to Sing Sing Correctional Facility in upstate New York, where they would live out the rest of their lives. Reporters swarmed the prisoners as they were escorted from the county prison to the car, desperate for last-minute anecdotes and pictures. In her time in jail, Ruth took to writing profusely. As time went by, Ruth's mental health deteriorated, a trend demonstrated in her chaotic writing. Ruth also converted to Roman Catholicism. Many claimed this act was just for show, as Ruth may have wanted New York Governor Alfred Smith, a Roman Catholic himself, to pardon her for her crimes. Ruth's alleged ploy for freedom failed, however, and her execution date was set to January 12, 1928. Forty spectators watched quietly as Ruth and Judd were executed via the electric chair. Ruth, obviously more distressed and dangerous than Judd, was killed first. Even in Sing Sing, Ruth had kept up her appearance. Her hair was impeccably done for the execution, save a small spot that had been shaved off for the electrode. Her eyes were puffy and her face red from crying. When Ruth was escorted into the room, she violently shrieked and went limp. Ruth was escorted to the chair and strapped in. Her last words were, quote, Jesus have mercy on me, for I have sinned. Within minutes, Ruth Snyder was dead. Judd was later escorted into the chamber. He was much calmer than his lover in the face of death, nearly muttering the 23rd Psalm before his electrocution. Both Judd and Ruth's bodies were later released to their families for burial. Photography during executions was strictly prohibited, but Tom Howard, an out-of-town reporter for the Chicago Tribune, snuck a one-shot camera into the execution chamber. The camera was strapped around Howard's ankle, with the shutter release running up his body and under his clothes so he could easily hit the camera button in his sleeve undetected. Seconds after Ruth was executed, Howard seized his opportunity, taking a crooked, blurry photo of Ruth's lifeless body. The photo appeared on the cover of the New York Daily News with the headline, Dead, the very next morning. The haunting image enticed the public and the paper sold out in minutes. Eventually, the wild media circus came to an end. Public interest in the case slowly dropped off in the wake of the criminal's execution. Yet, the case lived on for nine-year-old Lorraine Snyder. With both of her parents dead, one executed and one murdered, the young girl needed a new caretaker. A passionate custody battle between Albert Snyder's family and Ruth's mother, Josephine Brown, ensued. In the end, Josephine prevailed, and Lorraine went under her grandmother's legal care. Even as the years pass, the case of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray lives on in media depictions. Ruth's execution is referenced in the 1932 movie, Blessed Event, and 1933 film, Picture Snatcher. The case also inspired James Cain's 1936 novella, Double Indemnity. This novella was later adapted for the screen in 1944. 
Ron Hansen's 2011 novel, A Wild Surge of Guilty Passion, was also based off the Snyder Gray case. Perhaps most famously, the case inspired Sophie Treadwell's play, Mackinac. The play, published in 1928, the same year as the executions, centers around a young woman trapped in a loveless marriage. True to Snyder's life, the young woman in the play reluctantly marries her successful husband, has a baby girl, engages in a love affair with a traveling salesman, murders her husband, is found guilty in trial, and is eventually executed via the electric chair. As you may have noticed, Ruth Snyder's trial took place in New York, not the DMV. However, Georgetown University's very own Mask and Bobble Dramatic Society recently put on its very own production of Mackinac. Brett and I went to see the show together, and during intermission, we turned to each other and said, we have to cover this case. So, in a way, this trial does directly relate to the events on Georgetown's campus. The play itself was absolutely fantastic, perfectly capturing the desperate nature of an unhappy, murderous wife and her deeply upsetting fate. Congratulations to the cast and crew for a wonderful production of Mackinac, and thank you for inspiring today's episode. And thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode of Horror Saxa. We really appreciate the support. This has been Brett and Amelia on the crimes of Ruth Snyder. For brains, there just isn't room. Now there's been Jack the Ripper and Richard the Third. There's even been Billy the Kid. Billy was an irresponsible bird, but he didn't do what Ruthie did. Like the buzz on a peach, they cut off her blue.